All right, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Now, as you're turning over there, that's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, I mentioned this during the welcome, but we are doing this gospel reading plan that we started on January 1st, and we're going all the way until Easter Sunday. So how's that going for everybody? Hopefully you're still, you're still going strong, all right? If you've, if you've uh, got off track. If you're behind a little bit, or if you're just now hearing about this for the first time, don't worry, you can jump right back into it. We have a a list of what we're reading this week in the very back of the bulletin, and we have a monthly list of the readings right here in my hand. This is a bookmark that Erica Wicks made for us, and you can find that back there in the welcome desk, and I think some of you have already grabbed those. We have a large print for those who are visually impaired, and we have smaller print for those who like regular size bookmarks. But uh, either way, I just want to keep this in front of you. I want to keep reminding you that as a church, we're focusing on Christ in us. We're focusing on pursuing Jesus together as a church. So together, we're reading through the Gospels. And I hope that you are joining us uh, in this journey, and I hope that you're committed to it. And I hope that you stay the course. I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 13. These really short two parables about the kingdom. Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. If Jesus knows what he's talking about, and I think that he does, and if Jesus is right, which I think that he is, then what Jesus seems to imply in these two parables about the kingdom of heaven is that it's worth everything. That pursuing Christ and His kingdom is the absolute most important thing in the entire world. It's worth selling everything, giving everything up to acquire, to be a part of the kingdom. Many of you probably are familiar with this, and if not, I'll explain it to you. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell is an author, and he came out with this book where he popularized this idea of the 10,000-hour rule. How many of you have heard of this before? Okay, some of you have. The 10,000-hour rule is basically, it's based on research, but what Malcolm Gladwell says about the 10,000-hour rule is that to become an expert in anything or for something to become second nature to you, it requires only about 10,000 hours of practice. How does that sound? So whether you're learning to play an instrument or you're trying to play a sport or whatever it may be, maybe you can think of an example from your own life, For that to become second nature to you, to become an expert in that, whatever that may be, to find the freedom to play the instrument without having to think about it, it requires about 10,000 hours of practice. And it's not just 10,000 hours of repeating the same thing over and over. It's 10,000 hours of a deliberate pursuit of trying to get better at your overall performance. 
So in an interview, this became very popular after Malcolm Gladwell published this book, and in an interview later, people were really caught up on this number 10,000 hours, like there was like a magic number. And he said, 10,000 hours, it's not a hard and fast number. There's no magic to it. The 10,000 hours is really just a metaphor for the extent of commitment that is necessary. So if you want something... Whether it's playing an instrument, playing a sport, whatever it may be, if you want something, you're going to put forth the time that is required for that. So as I was reading and reminded about the 10,000 hour rule, I thought about our gospel reading plan. Not that it's going to take you 10,000 hours to do one chapter a day, and not that we're trying to become experts because we're all students. I talked about that last week. We're trying to discover Jesus and who Jesus is, discover Jesus more intimately through this gospel reading plan. But I I thought of this 10,000-hour rule in light of our gospel reading plan because I believe, combining that with what Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13, that if the pursuit of Christ and His kingdom is as important as what Jesus claims that it is, then it's worth our time. If we really want to learn to hear from God, to do God's will, to be so connected to the vine, then we've got to be willing to put in the time to consistently be in God's Word. I mentioned last week there's an author named Donald Whitney. And Donald Whitney talks about being, he calls it Bible intake, being in God's Word consistently. And he said, those who are free to quote Scripture... Scripture, those who are free to quote Scripture, those who are free to apply Scripture, in the every moments, the everyday parts of their life, are those who spend a significant amount of time in God's Word. It's hard to make ourselves do that. That's part of why we're challenging you, we're challenging us to do this together as a church. And so we're reading through the Gospels. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about what we're going to learn, what we know about the Gospels. And one of the first questions that may come to your mind, or or maybe is a question that I had, is why are there four of them? It's one person, but we get four different accounts of the life and the teachings of Jesus. So why are there four of them? Have you ever thought about that? Why not just one story? For whatever reason, this is how God chose to reveal to us Jesus through four different vantage points. Rather than just being captured in one single voice, God chose to give us Jesus through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So what do we know about the Gospels? Well, we know historically that Mark was written first. Almost every scholar and every historian would agree that Mark was the first one to sit down and write out the Gospel story. And Matthew and Luke came a little while later, and they probably used Mark as an outline. So they would add in their own memories and their own stories of of Jesus and teachings of Jesus. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar to each other, and that's why they're known as the Synoptic Gospels. So as you read through those three, you'll notice a lot of similarities, and then you'll notice their own uniqueness. And we know that John was written last. John was written probably a generation after Matthew Uh, Mark and Luke. And so we'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. But together, those are the four gospels that are in our canon. And those four gospels give us the life and the teachings and the ministry, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Which one is the most important one? 
All four of them. All four are equally relevant. All four Gospels are as important. They, are, uh, they have the same level of authority. All right? We need all four Gospels. So we are pursuing this study of reading through the four Gospels because neither, none of the four Gospels supersedes the other. They're all just as important. So let's spend a few minutes talking about the four Gospels, zoom in on, on each of the four, and there's so much information that I would love to give you uh, about each Gospel writer and how unique they are. I love all four Gospels in, in their own way. It's like having kids. You love your kids, but they're all a little bit different, right? But they're part of your family. So growing up, I was, you know, my, I had two brothers, and we had a lot of friends that we all loved to play sports, and so uh, any chance that we had, we would play pickup sports. We'd play football, played a lot of wiffle ball in the front yard, and we'd play basketball. The problem with basketball my entire life was that I was not great at dribbling the ball. And I, and I wasn't very good at shooting the ball either. And when I would pass the ball, I wasn't very good at doing that. So basically, the, squ- the skills that are required to play basketball, I did not possess those skills. And one day, we were playing some pickup basketball with our good, my brothers, good friends, and there was a, a friend of ours, his name's Jason, who was kind of the basketball guru, who's now a head basketball coach. And I'll never forget one day, he said, Jody, you're not very good at basketball. And I said, I know that. You, you're not revealing anything new to me. He said, you do have one redeeming quality, though. You only know one speed, and that's full speed. And he said, that can make up for your extreme lack of skill in basketball. <laughs> So I've always remembered that, you know, if, if anything, if I'm out there, I'm just going to go full speed and that'll make up for my lack of skill. Well, I thought of that when I was thinking about the gospel of Mark. And so I gave Mark the nickname. This is my nickname I'm giving Mark is the full speed gospel. And when you start to read Mark, which you'll be in Mark by the end of the month or towards the end of January, once we wrap up John, you'll notice that Mark is a little different. Mark just jumps right into it. In the beginning, the beginning of the good news of the Son of God and Jesus is an adult and John the Baptist has started his ministry. There's no birth story. There's no genealogy. Mark is fast-paced. You'll see this word immediately, over and over. You'll hear, read of miracles that Jesus performed, uh, exorcisms, Jesus casting out demons. Jesus is always on the move. It's really fast-paced. And I'll give you one key verse for the Gospel of Mark to keep in mind when you get to Mark, and that's Mark chapter 8 and verse 29. This is known as the hinge of Mark. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 29, Jesus has asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And then he turns the question around to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And this is when Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. A great confession and a turning point in Mark And from that moment on, after Mark chapter 8, verse 29, the full speed gospel starts to slow down a little bit. The miracles slow down in Mark. And the second half of Mark is focused on the cross. And what Jesus begins to tell his disciples is he gives them these three passion predictions. He tells them what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem, that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and rejected, and he's going to suffer, and he's going to die on a cross. And they, from that moment on, are headed towards the cross. So Mark is the full-speed gospel, at least for the first half. And then the second half of, God, of Mark is kind of like 
the gospel on the way to the cross. And there's so much more that I could say about Mark, but for the sake of time, I won't say more. I did a whole sermon series on Mark last year and the year before. And so hopefully you know that I, I love the way that Mark presents the story. He's a brilliant writer. Let's move, move on to, to Matthew. What do we know about Matthew? Well, last week, um, I guess it was about a week and a half ago, I was running from my backyard to my back porch, and it was wet and slippery, and I was running full speed, and I was feeling pretty good. Like, in my mind, I was thinking, I still got it. I'm feeling good. And as soon as I hit the porch, my feet slipped out from under me, and I I hit the ground pretty hard, and I cut my wrist all up, and I guess I didn't doctor it very well. So by around this time last Sunday and then going into Sunday afternoon, Uh, My wrist got all swollen and red and puffy, and then we noticed this red streak that was going up my arm. I didn't really think much of it, but Sunday night, I had a a good friend who's a physician's assistant. He was texting me, so I, and actually, there's Don right there. Don's the one that first pointed out to me, something's wrong with your arm. So I... (laughs) I pointed, uh, I, I sent a picture to my friend, Sean, who's a physician's assistant, and he was already texting me, and I said, do you think this is infected? And within about five minutes, Sean called me and put me on speakerphone because his wife is also a medical professional, and they both were trying to persuade me to go to the emergency room. I said, this is bad. It could get into your bloodstream. You probably need to go to the ER. So we debated for a few minutes because I kept trying to convince them that I think it may be uh, a little more financially responsible to just wait until the next morning and go see a doctor. And in the middle of this important conversation, Laura, my friend's wife, she just interrupted and she said, you sound more country. I said, what? And she said, your accent, it's thicker. You've been in East Texas for a long time. You sound country. And I'm like, we're talking about a life or death situation here and you're distracted with my accent. Okay. I thought of that when I think about Matthew, and I would give Matthew the nickname the Jewish accent gospel. Because Matthew, of all four gospels, is the most Jewish. It has the most Jewish flavor to it. Matthew is writing to, in the first century, these Jewish Christians who still held a a very high regard for the law of Moses and, and what made the Jews unique and And what made them stand out? And Matthew had a high honor and respect for that. And so what Matthew is doing as he tells the story of Jesus is he is trying to show these Jewish Christians that Jesus fulfills all Scripture. Old Testament, uh, the prophets, the law, that Jesus fulfills that. And throughout, I'll point this out to you, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's five large teaching blocks or teaching sections. And I'll point those out to you in just a second. And all five end with Matthew summarizing by saying, after Jesus had finished saying these things. So that's how we know. That's the marker. That's the ending of the next teaching block. So why is five important? Why is it important to know that Matthew has five large teaching blocks? It's Because in Judaism, the number five was important. Because the first five books of the Old Testament contains the law of Moses, the Torah. So that number five is important. And what Matthew is showing us with these five large teaching blocks, it kind of mimics the Torah. And Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the new and greater Moses. It's a very famous sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is the first large teaching block in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Starts with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, you know, blessed are those who are persecuted, and gives all the blessings. 
And then we have a large teaching block. And then we have um, chapter 10, he's commissioning his disciples. And it ends with after Jesus had finished saying these things. And then chapter 13, which we started with, the kingdom parables all in chapter 13. Chapter 18, life in the community, uh, the church, what it's like to be followers of Jesus and interact with each other. And uh, Matthew chapters 23 through 25 is the fifth large teaching block. And in chapter 23, he starts with the woes, woe to the Pharisees. Woe to the teachers of the law. So he starts his first large teaching block with the Beatitudes, with the blessings, and he ends his last large teaching block with the woes. So Matthew is the Jewish accent gospel. It definitely applies to us, but what we see in it is this unique, distinct Jewish flavor to it. So Mark is the full speed gospel, and then it slows down, and then it's on the way to the cross. Matthew is the Jewish accent gospel, and then we get to Luke. The third of the synoptic gospels. About three years ago, um, I was contacted by the Pine Tree Church of Christ to consider interviewing for this preaching job. We prayed about it. I talked with my wife about it. And we decided that this would be something we would be interested in. So very early on in the interview process, I was paired up with three guys from the search committee and I won't give you their names right now, but I don't know if they would mind anyways. I've gone back and forth on that, so we'll just, I'll leave that up to suspense. We had a video conference, and they were interviewing me, trying to, I guess, figure out who I am, get to know me a little bit. And they asked me a question, what Bible character do you identify with most and why? And you know, when you're interviewing somebody, you're trying to come across as confident, but that stumped me. I was like, hmm... Let me come back to you on that one. I had to think about it for a minute. There's a lot of Bible characters that I identify with. And then as the interview went on, I said, okay, I have an answer for that question. The the Bible character that I identify with most is Luke. So you think about Luke, you don't think about Luke as being a part of the story, a Bible character. You don't think that. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. So we think of Luke as an author, as a writer. Now, we know that Luke kind of writes himself into the story a few times in the book of Acts when he says we, because he was with Paul on the missionary journeys. Paul mentions Luke a few times in his letters, and that's about all we know about Luke. But the reason that I identify with Luke is because one of the things that I have felt passionate about over the last 15 years or so is influenced by Luke. Or I guess you could say something that messed my life up more than than anything else is reading the Gospel of Luke. Because Luke presents Jesus in a way where Jesus favors the Gentiles, the poor, the marginalized, the outcast. So I would nickname Luke the outsider's Gospel. Luke presents Jesus as he is the shepherd for all the sheep, including the Gentiles, including the outcasts, including those who are often overlooked. And over the last 15 plus years of my life, I've found myself in the streets working with homeless people. I've found myself living in Africa. I've found myself in places I would have never dreamed of when I was a kid. And a lot of that was influenced by Jesus and what I read of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. And I'll point out something from the Gospel of Luke as you prepare to read that later on in the next few months. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, Luke tells us that Jesus 
resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So he's on his way. He's on his way to the cross. He's on his way to the place where he will die. And he doesn't arrive in Jerusalem until chapter 19 and verse 45. So in chapters 10 through 19, what we have in the Gospel of Luke is a lot of unique teachings. There's a lot in in those chapters that you won't find in the other three Gospels. For instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. That reveals the heart and the strategy behind Jesus' teaching. And that's been one of the most popular parables in the entire world. Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. We wouldn't know about that had it not been for Luke. Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke chapter 19, Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house, this chief tax collector, and so on. And there's so much more that we could talk about. But in between that section on the way to Jerusalem, we see the heart of Jesus and that He has a heart, not just for the lost sheep of Israel, but Jesus had a heart for the entire world. Jesus had a heart for those who are outcasts and those who are outsiders. So Mark's sort of the uh, full-speed gospel. Matthew is the Jewish accent gospel. Luke is the outsider's gospel. And then we get to John which is what we're currently studying right now if you're doing the gospel reading plan. And I've nicknamed John the remix gospel. Because as maybe I've already mentioned, uh, John was written almost a generation after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so by the time John writes his gospel, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have circulated around the churches and around the known world at the time. And so John doesn't feel the need to repeat some of the same stories. So most of John is unique. And I try to think of an example to use, and I try to think of a song that maybe was really popular, and then later a remix, and that was popular, but I couldn't think of any good examples, so use your imagination there. John is the remix gospel. And one of the ways that John tells the story of Jesus is through these seven I am statements. That's important because in Exodus chapter 3, in verse 14, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he's sending Moses... Uh, to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of slavery, Moses says, who do I say sent me? And, And God tells him, I am. Which is where we get the sacred name, Yahweh. I am who I am. And in the Gospel of John, we have seven main I am statements. And in fact, there's a couple other times where Jesus refers to himself as I am. I am the light of the world. I am the Bread of life, I am the gate for the sheep, I am the good shepherd, Uh, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way and the truth and the life, I am the vine. These I am statements are Jesus identifying himself as a part of God. And that's one of the ways that John tells the story of Jesus. John doesn't include the parables like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. But Mark has, I mean, John has a lot of... um, rich symbolic language and figures of speech and he talks about living water and the bread of life and eating his flesh and drinking his blood and there's a lot of uniqueness to John also so we just kind of span over I'm just giving you some quick highlights of the four gospels and hopefully what you're seeing in all four gospels is they're all unique all four gospels present Jesus in their own distinctive way their own unique way And there's not one gospel that's more important than the other. They're all equally relevant. They're all equally important. And they're interdependent on each other to give us the full picture of who Jesus is. It's 
So I titled this lesson, One Person and Four Portraits. That's why as we study, we are started on January 1st and we're studying through the Gospels leading up to Easter Sunday, we want to immerse ourselves, we want to consume the Gospels. Immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus and the four different ways the Gospel writers present Jesus to us so that as followers of Jesus, we will keep in step with how the Spirit is leading us, keep in step with the life and the teachings of Christ. There's this old parable that was attributed to a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. It's a short little parable, and it's about a jewelry store. And this was from, this picture is not from a long time ago, but the parable was written over 100 years ago. And so it was before there was computer systems and ways of keeping records like we have now. So kind of imagine an old world. And the parable is about this jewelry store. And one night, a group of thieves break into the jewelry store. And they don't steal anything. Instead of stealing anything, they just go switch up all the price tags on everything. So the next day, when people show up for work, and people come to shop at that jewelry store, nobody really knows the true value of anything anymore. As the parable goes, people wind up spending a fortune on something that's almost worthless. Because nobody knows the value. The price tags have all been switched up. And then when that's the case, how do we know what something's worth? But when it comes to pursuing Christ and His kingdom, you can't put a price on that. And back to those parables that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46, that the kingdom of God is worth everything. The kingdom of heaven is how Matthew words it, is worth everything. It's like a man who found a treasure in a field and he went and sold everything that he had so that he could buy that field and have that treasure. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Or he said, it's like a man who is searching for fine pearls, and once he found one of great value, what does he do? He sells everything so he can go have that pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus is saying it's worth everything. It's worth your time. It's worth reading one chapter a day. It's more important than anything you'll read or anything that you'll do this week. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything. And we're inviting you to immerse yourself in the Gospels over the next few months. Uh, if you've ever done the five love languages, maybe you know what your top love language is, or maybe you're not familiar with that. One of the love languages is gift-giving, gift-receiving. That, that is not one of my love languages. So I've never been great at giving gifts. In fact, we just had Christmas, and all the gifts that we gave to the nieces and nephews and everybody else, guess who purchased it? My wife. And, and when they would come say thank you, I would say, what did we get you? Because I didn't even know what we got. That's, that's how terrible I am with giving gifts. So this past summer, my daughter turned seven, and I thought, you know, I probably should get her something personal from me. So I decided I would buy her a Bible. I bought her an NIV Bible. You know, maybe something she'll use as she gets older, and she grows and learns how to read better and better, and I decided I would write a note for her in the inside cover. I've had people do that for me over the years, and even if I don't study from those Bibles on a regular basis, occasionally I will go back and I will look at that personal note that was written to me. So I decided I would do that for my daughter and then give that to her as a gift. And I decided I'll do that for my son as well. And, 
and do that periodically throughout their lives because my thought is, if anything ever happened to me, one memory I would want them to have when they would think about their dad is what I felt was most important in life. And I would want them to know that and to take that with them. Or as they grow up and they go off to college and move off on their own, they pack up their belongings and move from one dorm room to another or one apartment to another or into a home, that when they keep these Bibles, that someday when they move, they'll look back through them and maybe look at the Bible and read the note that I wrote them. And maybe that will be a reminder to them of how incredibly important this is. And maybe this morning you needed to be reminded of the words of Jesus. That the kingdom of heaven is worth everything. And for those who have ears to hear, then let you hear it. If you need anything this morning, you can come up front. You can talk with me, talk with one of our elders. We'll have shepherds around the room. We invite you to respond at this time. I'll invite you to stand up. I love you, Lord.